Would you open your Bibles to the book of Hebrews? I really do have something important I want to share with you. Uh, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. I'm going to be reading from the New King James Version this morning. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him, speaking of Jesus, who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls, the some of the versions say faint in your souls. Some of them say, uh, it's different, but it's basically all the idea that your soul has become numb. For these next few weeks, that's actually uh, what we're going to be talking about is our souls. Um, I've preached a, a lot of sermons in eight years and none of them about this. And I don't know why. Uh, because this is kind of important. Because this warning that Paul is giving us... Whoever the writer of Hebrews is, I happen to believe it's Paul. You, you might want to be wrong and think it's somebody else, but it could be somebody. Oh, I'm just kidding. Um, I, I believe it was Paul, but whoever it is, he's, he saw fit to say that you don't become weary and specifically faint in your souls. Your soul, the seat of who you are, that's the, the word idea there is that like your feelings, the seat of your emotions, your feelings, your intellect, who you are. In the Old Testament, when they use the word soul, it's actually translated uh, soul, but the word is nefesh, which actually means throat. So like when we would say in our culture, invite Jesus into your heart, they would have said throat in in the Jewish language because it's the idea that your throat is the seat of life. Uh, As the deer pants for the water, so my nefesh longs after you. Our soul is the seat of intellect and of purpose And from the beginning of time, Satan has declared war on your soul. And he has used one primary weapon, shame. He has weaponized shame against you. Because in the beginning, we were made to be with each other, with community. Create us in our image. It speaks of the community that he's created. You were connected with each other, created to be connected with each other, created to be connected with God. And shame caused Adam to pull away. That's a story that's still happening to this day. That there is a story uh, in the book, The Soul of Shame, which I have mentioned before. Dr. Kurt Thompson talks about the idea that we live according to stories in our lives. We... Jesus taught by parables. It said he taught by a parable. Without a parable, he did not teach them. He knew that we would live by stories. So when you say, I'm believing a lie about myself, what you're really actually saying is, there's this story that I have been believing about me that is, I'm believing wrongly about me. The story that started when I was little. This idea, because even before we could speak, even before we could really get language, there were stories beginning to form. Is it no, literally no... uh, coincidence that Satan would use stories, the same thing Jesus knew to teach us, Satan would use to attack us with stories. And that story is one of 
of shame that you are not good enough, that you are not enough, that if you get found out that you're going to be ostracized and rejected and alone, that is weaponized shame for you. The story that started from the beginning of time. And when you read this passage over again with that lens, he says that we're surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses. We're going to throw off the weight and the sin which so easily besets us, not just the sins that we have committed, but the sins committed against us. If you have been abused, if you've been sexually abused, if you've been abused, you know that a sin that you didn't commit but one was committed against you can still bring the same shame as if you did it, ensnaring you. Set aside the weight, the the sin that would beset you, ensnare you. Looking after Jesus, the author, the storyteller of your faith. He's going to finish it. He's the author of your faith. And what is he, he? He's endured the cross. He set that despising the shame. Now, if I were Jesus, I would despise the fact that someone's going to put a nail in my hand. That would make me very angry. I, I would hate that. I hate pain. I would despise the fact that it was an unjust execution. He was falsely accused, executed unjustly, but it doesn't say he's going to despise that. No, despising its shame. Maybe it's because there is something in so insidious about shame in all of us that everything else around us, that it's the shame that he hated the most because of what it does to us. And after that, it says he despised the shame. He sat down for consider him who endured such hostility from sinners, right? So he didn't sin, but he was sinned against. He, just, he still pushed through the shame that that brought to him lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. That is the journey that we are going to take in these next four weeks. It's a journey to what your soul is and how the story that Jesus has authored about your life is true and real. And everybody in this room, there's a story that you are living from and the question is, which story is it? And wouldn't you rather live the one that is true, the one that Jesus has, right? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word and for your promise. And that your word is a lamp and a light. It always has been. It always will be. It's everything you promised it could be. And I'm so thankful that you care for us fully. Our heart, our physical, our spirit. You care for all of us. And you've left us wisdom here implicitly and explicitly in this passage of Hebrews that can guide us to living out of a full life. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You, if you were raised in the church, uh, when I say you have a soul, would say, well, duh. Like my grandma Nana told me that, right? The Nazarene pastor told me that. You're a spirit, a soul, and a body. Which, by the way, the Old Testament, and we'll get to that, is not quite so cut and dry as far as which is which. Like when you are resurrected, it's not your soul that just resurrects, it's you that resurrects, a literal body. So we'll, we'll get to that. But if you are a humanist or a materialist, you don't believe any of that. You believe that your thoughts, your intellect, your feelings, your decision-making is just a literal reaction of the synapses and the ions and the mind blowing around in your brain, and that's who you are. That's what science for the last 50 years was uh, propagating. Propagating? Is that a word? Someone get the verbs. Uh, Propagating on us. Uh, And as if God knew that I was going to need this today, a a neurosurgeon wrote an article that was released yesterday. (laughs) 
right? Thank you, Jesus. And thank you, Dr. Michael Egner. Um, Because Michael wrote this piece as a neurosurgeon that went from being a guy that really wasn't sure that he believed kind of that about your brain is just synapses firing. And so the experience of knowing Lauren or knowing Lucy is just what's happening in your brain. It's just from the material. It's just what can be tested. And over time, he has become to believe differently based upon his experience. He starts this article with a story about a girl named Katie. Katie was a fraternal, do we decide fraternal or fraternal? Fraternal, twin, parents of twins. Unite, I'm not one, but solidarity. Fraternal twin, and she was born with most of her brain missing. And so he began to prepare, uh, because the scans had showed this, began to prepare the parents for what they would experience with a daughter who didn't have full brain function, except she did. And he tells the story how after 17 years, this is 17 years into her life, that they've had to drain fluid from her brain a couple of times, but she is excelling at every part of her life. She's going to school. She's getting good grades. She's going to go to college. And it doesn't make any sense if you're just looking at what's on a scan. And he says that over the years, I've treated uh, some people with deficient brains. He does say are profoundly handicapped, but not all are. And this is what he says. I've treated and cared for scores of kids who grow up with brains that are deficient. Listen, but minds that thrive. And he's saying that the problem with his belief in materialism was that that didn't square with who, what he believed was on paper. And he says, uh, let's see, he says this. He says, I thought I had, uh, how does the brain and the mind relate? So if you're following me, and I know you might not be, but hang with me. Your brain and your mind, if you are a spiritual person that believes in Christ, are actually two separate things. They're dual. If you're a materialist, there's only one thing. It's just your brain. So he's saying that how does the mind relate to the brain? This is the question. This question is central to my professional life. I thought I had it answered, yet a century of research and 30 years of my own neurosurgical practice has challenged everything I thought I knew. He starts talking about a a neuroscientist named Francis Crick, a Nobel laureate, was the guy, he was the co-discoverer of the structure of DNA, so pretty smart guy. And he was the guy that originally propagated this idea that, uh, the, the, uh, he says here that the DNA, uh, the person's mental activities are entirely due to the behavior of nerve cells, glial cells, atoms, ions, molecules that make them up and influence them. That is a materialist view of it. That's where it comes from, okay? But listen to this. He says that the problem with that is that it ignores the ghost in the machine. Holy ghost, Holy Spirit. If you're charismatic, we, if, that's how you know you've gone to a charismatic church is if we say Holy Ghost. Because we're talking about the Holy Spirit. You know what I'm talking about, right, Connor? Oh, Holy Spirit. So he's using language that we're actually kind of familiar with here. But this is what he says that Francis Bacon, no relation to Kevin, <laughs> approach to understanding the world gained ascendancy during the scientific enlightenment. It became fashionable to limit inquiry about the world to physical substances, to study the machine and ignore the ghost. Matter was tractable and we studied it to obsession. The ghost was ignored and then denied. This was the logic materialism demanded. If you are a humanist, if you are a materialist, an atheist, you have to believe that. I love this because this speaks to me of that there is a proof of that there is a God. There's something beyond here. Because he goes on to say then, in the work that he's done, he starts quoting Wilder Penfield. And Wilder Penfield was a guy that did a lot of pioneering work in brain surgery for people who have epilepsy. 
and he would drill. Do you know that they do this, by the way? They drill a hole in your head while you're awake. Apparently, your brain doesn't feel pain. Did you know that? Okay, well, well, that's brand new information to me. They drill a hole in your awake, and what he's saying is that this is this doctor who was a materialist humanist saying that this is, I could actually stimulate it and I could make the arm move. And he said it was weird because they always knew that it was me. They would say, I'm make, you're making my arm move. He said he could stimulate and cause a seizure, but he couldn't, in his words, cause an intellectual seizure. And so this guy who started his career as a materialist ended it as a dualist. He says, Penfield began his career as a materialist. He finished his career as an emphatic dualist. He insisted that there is an aspect of the self-intellect and the will that is not the brain and that cannot be elicited by stimulation of the brain. He talks about another guy named Labette, and Labette was a guy that would try to, his test of the brain involved electrodes and trying to get the, you know, make a decision and look where it fires off. And he says that Labette noted the correspondence between his experiments, I love this, and the traditional religious understanding of human beings. We are, he said, beset by a sea of inclinations corresponding to material activity in our brains, which we have the free choice to reject or accept. It's hard not to read this in a more familiar term. We are tempted by sin, yet we are free to choose. He talks about that human beings have two powers of the soul that are not material the intellect and the will, the material. And I, I can speak from that and say, look, I got a dog, uh, you know, when Bear, our little doggy, like she, she feels sad sometimes, right? Sometimes she feels mad, whatever. but I've never seen Bear ever have an intellectual existential crisis over why am I here, who, who am I? Because that's something that's unique to humans that dogs don't have. They're cute and they're adorbs, totes adorbs. But he says... Sorry, Ashley, I really apologize. They are the means by which we reason and by which we choose based on reason. We are composites of matter and spirit. We have spiritual souls. He talks about uh, philosopher Roger Scruton, who actually invented the crouton. Did you know that? It was originally called the Scruton. <laughs> and then he changed it because it didn't have as much marketing. Philosopher Roger Scruton has written that contemporary neuroscience is a vast collection of answers with no memory of questions. Materialism has limited the kinds of questions we're allowed to ask, but neuroscience pursued without a materialist bias points towards the reality that they, we are chimeras. Anybody know what that is? If you raise your hand, I'm going to know you're a conspiracy theorist that spends a lot of time reading about Nephilim. Jamie, I knew it. <laughs> Genesis, Nephilim, or you're an Enneagram 5, one of the two. Um, Materialum, we are uh, chimeras, chimeras, chimera. chimera. <laughs> Jamie knows how it's pronounced. <laughs> we are chimera, material beings with immaterial minds. I know I've read a lot, but would you allow me to read one more thing that he wrote, the way he ends this article, that we are material beings with a spiritual soul, neurosurgeons, neuroscience is saying this. He says, there's much about the brain, he ends this article, and the mind that I don't understand but neuroscience tells a consistent story. There is a part of Katie's mind that is not her brain. She is more than that. She can reason. 
She can choose. There is a part of her that is immaterial, the part that Sperry couldn't split, that Penfield couldn't reach, that Labette couldn't find with his electrodes. There is a part of Katie that didn't show up on those CAT scans when she was born. Katie, like you and me, has a soul. That soul is what the enemy wants to destroy and what Jesus wants to resurrect. And that is what we're here to fight for. In these next few weeks, we're going to dive into what it is, how it works, how we need each other for each other. We're, we're literally, we're created to be around each other. I'm not created to be alone. But for today, in this vignette of scripture that we have in front of us, I want to ask just three questions of us today. Which story are you living out of? Who is the author of that story? What is the story that Jesus is telling with your life? That's the second question. What is the story that Jesus is telling? And the third one, where does the power come to live that story? You see, Jesus, it says, the story, which story are you living from? Jesus is the author, the finisher of your faith. He's the author. He's writing a story about you. And from the very beginning of time, the enemy wants to spin another story that you're living from, that you could live from, that starts when you are so little that you don't even know it. It weaves into who you are. And that story affects everything from your career to how you parent your children. If you're living out of the Jesus story or if you're living out of the shame story. If you've been around this church for any length of time or my children have heard me tell the story of when I was 10 years old and I uh, cut my knee open with a machete. Do you guys remember the story? My kids, okay. Uh, so if, just if you will suffer this with me. 10 years old, I've got a machete. So I'm 10 years old with a machete. That is already a problem, okay? How many 10-year-olds in here? Anybody 10? Represent? Anybody under 10? I'm, I've got a machete, I'm 10, and I'm wearing shorts. Okay, perfect storm. My mother is a, like Safeway or whatever grocery store Superior Nebraska had at the time, and my dad is asleep, and I'm out in the yard playing Star Wars or whatever I was doing, and, and I hit my knee with the uh, the, the, right by the, the handle, full force, well, as much force as a 10-year-old can get, but full enough to have split it wide open to where I could actually see my knee. I've actually seen the inside of, right? <laughs> it was bad. So, um, so, and I'm 10, and it's like, it, it was, close your eyes, but it, it was like the skin went like that, and my, you could see my knee just spread out. And so I'm like, oh my God, I went to find my dad, and my dad is sleeping. So I go in, I wake my dad up, and he's all bleary-eyed because he's working the night shift down at the factory. And he comes out, and he, he takes like whatever Band-Aids he could find in our cabinet and tapes it back together. And I went back to bed. As you do. It didn't take long before it bled through and the, the band-aids are falling off and I'm making a mess. And so I, this is back, I don't know if you know this, not you guys, young people especially, there was a day when you would call somebody that if they weren't there, the phone would just ring. <laughs> just ring. And they couldn't do anything about it. And there was nobody there. And so I didn't know who, to, the only person I thought might be home, I guess, in my 10-year-old mind is I called my grandma, Tyler, who was my dad's mom. To put it differently, I was tattling on my dad. Grandma. So she comes up in her old piece of something, you know, Oldsmobile beater car, and she, first she barks at my dad. She goes, I, she sticks her head in the, in the bedroom door. And, 
ah, she's got her finger in his face. And, and she, and I'm literally, I'm bleeding. I got my sock is now red. And so she takes me to the hospital and 15 stitches later, uh, my mom finally, they finally found my mom. Maybe she got home from the groceries. I don't even, I don't hundred percent know where she was. I just know she wasn't home. I've told that story before. And when I tell that story, I tell it as a funny story. And I just told it as a funny story and you laughed and you don't have to feel bad because it's a funny story if you think of it that way. But that's not funny. That's actually really sad. I was 10, okay? The guy that was supposed to be there for me went to bed. But the story of shame was so profound in me that he didn't go to bed because he was tired. He went to bed because there was something wrong with me that wasn't worth helping. That is the story that wove into my soul at eight, nine years old. I want you to hear me say this. Nobody told me that. My dad didn't tell me that. No one ever said those words. He didn't mean those words. He was doing the best he could do with what he knew being raised by an alcoholic, abusive father in the 50s. That's all he knew to do. But shame wasn't that my dad was tired, that he was working. My dad wasn't, no, shame said, you're not worth helping. You're on your own. And I've told that story over the years that my dad was working the night before. It wasn't until just recently that I remembered he wasn't working the night before. That was when he was hooked on prescription painkillers. He was asleep because he was stoned. And I never remembered that. Because shame, when you're in that situation as a child, by the way, what happens there is that it is so terrifying that the one person, the person you're supposed to depend on the most, isn't there for you. So it's actually better that there's something wrong with you than something is wrong with them. Because if there's something wrong with them, you're really in trouble. Which is why if you've ever seen a child being pulled out of an abusive home, they will literally hold on to the leg of the parent who is abusing them because there's something wrong with them, not with him. That is the story that shame was telling me. And I've told it as a funny story, literally not even thinking about it because it was better if it's funny than if it's true. That was a whole lot easier of a story to tell because shame disguised as a hilarious joke was telling me that you're not worth it. You're on your own. And I have lived most of my adult life with that. Every company I've started was me saying, you're on your own. You, ain't nobody coming for you, buddy. Your needs aren't, and here's what that does in your life, you, especially if you've got an Enneagram 2 wife who's a server and she wants to serve and help your needs. And I'm over here, I don't need anything because I'm not allowed to have needs because there's bigger problems in the world, whatever. So I'm saying something, trying to be nice and helpful. And what I've really done is drawn a line in the sand between me and her. I'm not even know I'm doing it. I'm just living, a, I'm living the wrong story. I'm living a shame story. And the thing is, some of you might even be thinking right now, Darren, why, does it, why would you want to go dredge that stuff up? What good does that do? To, to just think about, your, doesn't it just throw your dad under the bus? Does it, you know, and here's the thing. The Bible says, Philippians, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are good, a good report, think on these things, right? Doesn't it say that? But it also says whatever things are true. It's not that everything I think about has to run through that grid of all those things. 
Because the fact is, is there are some things that are true that aren't lovely, but they're still true. And so by me thinking about that, it actually allowed me to have a freedom of going, oh, okay, my dad didn't mean any of that. He didn't know. He's just doing what he knew to do. I can, it allows me to forgive him and allows me to hopefully step into a story, what we're gonna talk about now, which is the story that Jesus is writing with my life, where I'm available for my kids, for my wife. And if you're a young parent, especially old parent, whatever, I want you to hear me say this. This stuff matters. You young parents listen to me and you listen good. You're going to one day say goodbye to your child as she goes somewhere. I just made it through saying that. The first two services, I lost it when I said that. Wow. (laughs) I'm telling you, I've been a hot mess all morning. You're going to say goodbye to your child and it will be too late. There are no go-backs and do it over again. You have a chance now to be there for your child and to figure out what story that you're living that isn't the Jesus story and allow Jesus to speak into that story. Not that you're gonna be a perfect parent. And I'm so grateful for a God who we can trust with our kids. I can't go back, Ashley, and undo, redo, be there when I wasn't. And that kind of sucks. I would have given anything to have known this 10 years ago. It's how shame begins to propagate from generation to generation. It is an insidious weapon because then you're gonna do the best you know to do and, and Jesus is gonna have to heal your children too. They're gonna talk about you in therapy someday. Like it, you, you won't be the first one to make out with a child who doesn't need therapy. <laughs> so I'm not asking for you to do it perfect. I'm just saying, if you understand the story that Jesus wants to write about your life, it is a good story. He is the author and the finisher. The story that he is telling is so much better than Muhammad, than Buddha, than Krishna. They're all authors of faith, but they're not finishers. They just get you started, and then you gotta finish. I'm starting, but now you're on probation. You gotta figure the rest of this out and do it right yourself. That's not the story that Jesus is telling. The story that Jesus is telling is I'm the author and the finisher. You don't do anything, I've done it all for you. And you know why that's important? Because the work that really good social workers like Brene Brown have done when they talk about this topic of shame, and it's important work, that without Christ, you'll always have an incomplete solution to it. Because even with Brene Brown, I'm just starting something, I have to finish it. But with Jesus, he finished it. Give you, put it differently. In a clinical psychologist who is just approaching it from a humanist, I have to say that I am good, I am kind, I am smart, I'm all these wonderful things, whatever mantra is, I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. I gotta say things about me that aren't true. I can stand with Jesus and say things that, about me that are true, that I'm broken, that I'm incomplete as a father, that sometimes I hold myself back, that I, but I am righteous because of what Christ did, because he's the author and the finisher of my faith. And in that, I step into the Jesus story. Because the Jesus story about my life wasn't that I'm not worth it. The Jesus story is I'm so worth it that he came for me. That's the Jesus story. The Jesus story isn't that because I'm on my own, I gotta start all these businesses because otherwise I'm screwed. The Jesus story is, you know what? Because you went through these things, you learned some skills that maybe other kids didn't learn. 
So you learn some entrepreneurial skills. You learn how to pull yourself up by the bootstraps. Not out of shame, but that's a lesson that you learned. It is God taking things that the enemy meant for harm, using them for good. To put it differently, in your weakness, he is strong. So that's the Jesus story is that I don't work at Place of Hope with my wife to help drug addicts and alcoholics to try to fill some dark hole in my life. I do it because, man, I was the kid of a druggie. And I know what it feels like. And I know that that pain is now something that Jesus says, 1 Corinthians 1, Paul says that out of the way that you've been ministered to, now you can minister to others, not out of a dark hole, but out of an abundance of hope. To work with orphans in Haiti, I could do that to try to get some weirdo dark hole filled in me. And I promise you, there are missionaries out there that that's what they're doing. They've gone across the world because of a father wound that Jesus wanted to heal. But I can go there with a wound that is healed and say to an orphan who's been rejected, you know what, I was rejected too. I get that. And the Jesus story, as he is the author and the finisher of my faith. And the power that I get to live that out comes from the work that he did at the cross because of the joy that was set before him. Hebrews 11 is all about this great cloud of witnesses and every one of them were looking forward to the cross and every one of them were abused. They were dejected. They were rejected. They were marginalized. And if they lived out of a shame story, they would have lived out of it thinking, man, I'm not worth anything. I'm being rejected. The story of shame, it's just literally so visceral that you are feeling it. When we first went to Haiti, I don't remember how, if anybody in here was some of our first trips, but we'd go and they wouldn't even look us in the eye because they were in poverty and they lived in shame because that was the story that they had been told. And I love nothing more now than to go there. We're gonna go next month and we're gonna dedicate a baby, a baby Mark of Jean-Marie and Rose, uh, a little boy, I'm the godfather. Jean-Marie wouldn't even look us in the eye when we first went because of the shame of poverty, the shame of abuse, the shame of isolation. And the Jesus story for Jean-Marie is that I'm the author and the finisher of Jean-Marie's faith. Living out of that, the power of that, doesn't come from a mantra. It doesn't come from a Tony Robbins conference. It doesn't even come from a Brene Brown book. It comes from the power of the Holy Spirit manifest on the inside of you, revealing what the story of shame is and allowing you to rewrite that into the story that Jesus is writing for you. That's right, Lucy. See, the choice for us that sits before us right now is we could let our souls go to sleep because of abuse, because of uh, suffering, because of marginalization. So on the one hand, I could become really bitter and cynical, or on the other hand, I could just not feel at all. My soul has gone to sleep. But that is not the story that Jesus wants. He loves you. You can grow old and lonely and he'll still love you. But you don't have to. <laughs> he came that you might have life have it more abundantly. To not have your emotions control you, but at the same time, not let your emotions be buried and dug down deep someplace because your soul is the seat of all of those things. <sighs> you kids especially, you're gonna hear getting stories right now and you don't even know it. And I hope, I believe that a church that attacks shame head on is the best place in the world we could raise our kids. Because I want you to know that I'm looking at shame differently than I've ever looked at it. I despise it. Jesus, despising the shame, 
pressed forward. He hates it because of what it does to you, because of what it does to me. And one day we will stand before him, not just we will fully know. Listen, we are fully known. All shame is gone because ultimately that is what shame is there is to get rid of. So I'll not know him and he won't know me. But we'll get to know him and he'll know us and he'll know every, literally, by the way, incidentally, he already knows everything about you. But he wants to know you. And he will never leave you or forsake you. Shame says, I'm, uh, you're going to know this and now you're going to leave. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. I'm never going to leave you. I'm never going to forsake you. Paul wrote in Romans that nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. The story of shame says that, that, that if he knows this, you're, you're in trouble. But the story of Jesus says, no, no, I'm the author and the finisher. I'm never going to leave you. never going to forsake you. Stand to your feet. We'll continue this next week. Gang, this is going to be a journey for us. And I'm inviting you into it. Because I got to tell you, I, it, I, it's not a lot of fun to stand up here and tell stories like that. <sighs> but it's so freeing. And the way that we defeat, well, we'll talk about that next, the way we defeat shame. <laughs> and to rescue your soul and to rescue it back. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that your word today will be a lamp and a light. Just reminded that it was for the joy that was set before you that you endured the cross, despising its shame so that we can now stand before, that we can consider what you, Jesus, you were abused by sinners. And you press forward, we consider that for those of us that have experienced abuse ourselves. We can consider that, that we might not fall asleep in our souls. Jesus, I pray for everybody in here that your story becomes our story. You will reveal the stories of shame and replace them with the truth, the author, the finisher of our faith. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Have a great week.